Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs, coming to you not from Beijing this week, but from the brand new uh, China, Australian Centre on China in the World headquarters in Canberra. Um, this is a brand new building that has just opened. We have the architect Gerald Sato, uh, who's uh, based in Beijing, but is in the audience today. Uh, and our guests today are the founding director of the centre, Jeremy Barme. Uh, who's famous for many, many things that I won't go into now, and who has been on the podcast before, and Linda Javen, uh, translator, um, novelist, author of now her seventh novel, The Empress Lover, which was just recently published, who has also been on the podcast before. And today we're going to be talking about Beijing in three keys, um, 70s, 80s, and 90s, which are the decades that the three of us arrived in Beijing. Um, so I arrived in Beijing on February the 11th, 1995. Um, I had a job for the Swiss-Swedish engineering firm ABB. I was picked up from uh, the shoddy old airport by the human resources director, who took me to uh, the Tobacco Mansions Hotel, and then to dinner at an Australian-themed restaurant with kangaroos, uh, fake uh, kangaroos in it, um, and uh, mayonnaise uh, on all the food, and <laughs> a Filipino uh, cover band. Um, <laughs> so this wasn't the China that I um, set out to uh, explore. It was something rather different, and very different, I think, from uh, when you arrived first, Jeremy, in China. Can you tell us about your first 24 hours in China? First 24 hours, well, in those days you had to travel in through Shenzhen. And what, which year was that? In, 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 I arrived in October 74, which is nearly exactly 40 years ago. So it's 40 years ago this year. And we had to fly up to Beijing, naturally. Um, and you, you, it was a long ingress. And arriving in Beijing late at night, at about 10 o'clock at night, greeted by the other the three or four Australian students already studying in China, we went to the old, the original, even shoddier Beijing airport terminal that was festooned with quotations from Chairman Mao. My favourite, not then, but later, my favourite, was all-time favourite, was you raise the net and cast it wide and all this encompassed class struggle. So that was a fantastic, my favourite quote for many years and so it was festooned with these Mao quotes which was fantastic because we'd just been studying them and studied the denunciation of Antonioni's China just a few months earlier and then we were driven in this large bus through this quiet spooky streets of Beijing so wonderfully described many years later in The Coldest Winter of Beijing that novel about the death of Lin Biao all lights were off. There were hardly any street lights, and nobody turned on a car light unless you were about to crash into another car. You'd alert other people that you were driving by turning on your lights suddenly and then turning them off just to say, I'm there. Um, and this, is, this actually began in the 40s as part of the um, anti-American and anti-invasion military plan of China to not let anyone know where there were vehicles. And so you just travelled around the, these darkened streets, occasionally flashing lights. And then I arrived in my dormitories and very quickly... Um, met some Chinese students. We were allowed to have dealings with some Chinese. I very quickly learned we were not allowed to speak to Chinese people in the street. It was forbidden, but we did it anyway, and they all got into trouble if they spoke to you. Um, and the people who befriended us, there were no Americans. It was rather, we later realized what a blessed situation this was. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But that's, that's another part of the story. There were Canadians who spoke... Sorry, audience, most of our listeners <laughs> are American. Sorry, it's fine. Yankee friends. Um, but, um, you know, as they say in Chinese, they're everywhere. Um, but we met the Canadians who spoke... You know, the Chinese were weird and spoke Maoist Chinese, but the Canadians spoke this language. It was English, but I didn't understand it. I was asked the next day, can I audit your program? 
I had no idea. I thought there was some form of Scientology. So it was my first introduction to the other culture I'd actually fallen into, which was not just the culture of Maoist China, but also the foreigner in China. Linda. Um, I first went to China in 1979 um, on a little group tour to Guangzhou, and I split off from the tour. I was very pleased with myself and um, went to the People's Park. And as I was walking into the People's Park, a man approached me, a young man, about probably about my age, and said, um, may I, you know, in Chinese, do you speak Chinese? May I walk with you? I said, sure. I was very delighted because, as Jeremy said, you know, you were not supposed to have conversations. The Guangzhou was always a little bit more wild and a little bit more, you know, loose um, than Beijing. But this, we walked up and he told me he was a teacher of Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. And um, <laughs> I was delighted, of course, uh, and we had a Why? great... <laughs> he was so authentic. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had spent... You were a hipster. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Of a different order. Of a different order. I'd spent two years studying in Taiwan, <laughs> where the slogan, Wukong Buru, there is no hole into which they will not enter, was on every... <laughs> Given your later career, Linda, that's a fascinating remark. They, uh, they, that was on every bus, and it referred to the Gongfei, or the communist bandits. Um, and there was even a communist bandit hotline, um, in <laughs> which we were given at the beginning of every film and on every bus and in every public space in Taiwan when I was studying there. So there I was, my first trip to China, and I'm suddenly being, as it turned out, chatted up by a Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong thought instructor, who, when we got to the top of the hill and we sat down to just have a, you know, just have a rest, uh, threw himself on top of me and uh, tried to stick his tongue in my mouth, and I <laughs> pushed him away. <laughs> and he said, please marry me and get me out of here. So that... <laughs> and, and thus became a, began a lifelong love affair with China. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so from that was my first uh, introduction to China. Um, that, the second was uh, I went to Beijing. as uh, a, I was working for the Oxford University Press as a very low-level sub-editor, putting commas and, and, and full stops into school texts from Malaysia. But I did have the opportunity to travel with the uh, East Asian head to Beijing um, because he was going to negotiate a co-production dictionary with the commercial press of Hong Kong and I think it was um, San Lian. Um, it was a three-way co-production. So I was along because I was the China expert. <laughs> and the, um, and it, was, uh, it was astonishing. We got there, again, late at night, having flown in from Guangzhou. We had to fly through Guangzhou and stop there because there was fog, and the planes didn't take off in fog. There were many times flying from, from Hong Kong to Beijing after that, where I was on CAAC Airlines where um, they'd overbooked and they put up folding chairs in the aisle to take care of the overflow. Um, <laughs> it was quite extraordinary. Anyway, um, get to Beijing, first time, uh, so excited because it really had taken an overnight in Guangzhou that was unexpected. And finally get there, I'm very, very excited. And... Um, I sit in the front with the driver, you know, and I'm like, why aren't you using the headlights? <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> and he said, exactly. And he said, to conserve the battery. 
And of course, you know, you, you, just as you're about to crash into something, everybody flicks on their headlights and goes, whoo And, you know, you, you, there were on the dirt road in from the airport, um, which was only slightly upgraded from uh, Jeremy's time, on the dirt road in there were uh, donkey carts and there were bicyclists and um, it was all very... It was all very exotic to me and all very kind of thrilling. They're all in their Mao suits and, you know, all that sort of thing. And getting into China, there were more lights on, not a huge number, but this, one of my first impressions was that there were these street lamps that were on throughout the city, and everybody was sitting under them reading or playing cards um, because the electricity supply to the homes was, was so uneven that people would come out and sit under the street lamps. Um, we went, we stayed. Let, let, can I ask both of you? Sure. To, um, I mean, it's a very grim country that you arrived in at that time. Uh, quite an unpleasant place to be in, in all kinds of ways. So, what made you go back after your what first trip? Know? Well, I wasn't just a first ride, a few years where I didn't leave. Right. And after I was there in the period of the great achievements and success of the proletarian cultural revolution. So it took some time, having studied Chinese here at the ANU, actually just over the road from where our new building is, um, and having studied the communist propaganda and also the official line, to realise just how completely and utterly bizarre all of that was. I was also in Beijing in 74 when they began reprinting classical novels and a Let's few classical works. Let's go back works. a bit, Jeremy. So, so you arrived and you stayed for about three years. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Before and coming home on a holiday. If you had wanted to leave... Of course. You could have left. Oh, you weren't absolutely trying. Oh, no, 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 no. So you stayed. Yeah. And why? Well, was, having studied Chinese and Sanskrit and Eastern philosophy and stuff, I was studying classical Chinese in China and also revolutionary politics, international workers' movement, and we had a political class. It, we, our first major political class was on Mao Zedong thought. We learned, we learned how, to, how workers um, in an abattoir kill chickens by applying Chairman Mao's on practice <laughs> and also on contradiction. For those, for somebody with a slight twist of mind, this is a child, this is, it wasn't because Grimm might have been Grimm, but how incredible to be studying Chebabau's on contradiction to learn how to kill a chicken. How could one not think this is a place to spend time in? <laughs> and Linda, do you feel the same? Um, I Does that guy sticking a tongue down your mouth? I know, <laughs> that's, like, oh that's what did <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had studied Chinese history and then I'd gone to Taiwan and I was there for two years studying the Chinese language and literature and during that time China was uh, beginning to open up. That was around the time of Democracy Wall. I was in Taiwan reading about all this stuff that was going on in China. Taiwan had its own excitements and I was very much uh, I was very interested in what was going on in Taiwan because there was a whole process of democratization there too. Um, and, uh, I, and my friends were very into it and um, that was the beginning of the campus folk music and all of that, uh, the movement for campus folk and, and the very beginnings of uh, Taiwan or Taiwan uh, identity, consciousness, etc. So it was very exciting but at the same time there was a feeling that life was elsewhere and it was in the mainland and the most amazing things in the world were happening just across the strait. And of course, at that time, you couldn't make a phone call. You couldn't get unadulterated news. I worked in a little magazine in Taiwan where when the Encyclopedia Britannica arrived, <clears throat> the entry on Mao and the entry on the, on the PRC and so on were covered with stickers um, that, uh, with, with some sort of slogan. And every time Time magazine arrived, um, any communist leader's face was stamped with Gongfei, communist <laughs> bandit. Um, and we, we spent a lot of time steaming stickers off things. Um, so 
to actually be in China. I didn't care that it was that you know I might get killed because people didn't use their headlights. You know, it didn't matter. It was so exciting to be in the place where suddenly there was this massive shift. Uh, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole orientation of the country, the political orientation, the economic orientation, the social and cultural thing, everything was changing. Things were exciting. It was a time of incredible possibility. And as the 80s developed, it was also proving to be a time of great cultural renewal and excitement, poetry and art. And I fell in with... Um, I, I was very lucky. I saw the first... Uh, I saw the stars, the Xinxin Hua Hui exhibition that was in the um, National Gallery after they'd been in Beijing. It was in 1979. Uh, 80. 80. 1980. Yeah, August 80. And so I was very lucky, um, and that put me... It just connected me with people who were fascinating to me, um, you know, because I began hanging out with the artists and, and so on. And to me, it represented this this uh, astonishing sort of awakening, this total excitement, the relative poverty. People didn't aspire so much. Materially, people aspired to the four rounds at that point, which were the, what was it, the sewing machine, the bicycle, the watch, the watch and the tra- transistor radio? Mm. Three rounds and a sound, I think it was. And... Um, and you know, I mean, people went, oh, my God, you've got a Phoenix brand bicycle when I started to live in China. But let's ask Jeremy. What, yeah, what, sorry. What, you went there in 96. 95. 95. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, an odd period as well. The massive transformation of 92-3 was beginning and taken off, mm. you know, the new wave of reform. But, you know, you're a, a person of a certain bent of mind in terms of world weariness and dubiosity, I think they call it. What kept you there? Because you've been there a long time. Jeremy. Yes, I have. I mean, I've, I've spent probably more time in total than mm. the two of you there. Put, you, together, you know, put together. Put together. Even though we <laughs> might possibly. be older by yeah. hundreds of years. I know. Well, um, you know, the, the first year I was there, I lived in a workers' dormitory. Uh, the ABB, despite being a massive, you know, Fortune 500 company, didn't have much of a budget for English teachers, which was the job I had. So uh, I lived with uh, migrant workers from Henan and Anhui. Um, and uh, that was how I learned to speak Chinese. And to this day, I speak pretty appalling Chinese because... He speaks like a Hernan peasant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, and it was, uh, it was really fascinating to live in a workers' dormitory. It was in the Beijing Economic uh, Technological Development Zone, which uh, at the time was basically countryside and a few factories and is now uh, where the Fifth Ring Road is, the South Fifth Ring Road. Um, But I wanted to spend a little bit more time sort of in the city of Beijing, uh, and I got another job with ABB in downtown Beijing, and I thought I'd leave. Um, And then I saved up money doing that job. Uh, I decided to go on a long bicycle trip, so I bought a nice mountain bike and I flew to Islamabad, in Pakistan, and then I rode up to uh, Peshawar and then wandered my way up to the Karakoram Highway and into Xinjiang, Qinghai, Tibet, and then uh, spent a few months just flaking out in Kathmandu. And um, this is where I should say that this is the time that I met your uncle and aunt, I didn't know Jeremy, in London, 
because Lucy Turner, oh. your former roommate, my old friend, happened to be staying with your uncle and uh, renting a room. And they right. said, oh, we have this crazy nephew right. who's got a bike and he's riding around all these strange places. You might pump me to in China. And I said, are you people crazy? That was huge. <laughs> I'll it never took be a few years. It took a few years. But so I, I got back to Beijing and I um, was going to leave. I thought it's enough, two years, you know, I wasn't a China specialist. Um, and then uh, a, a mutual uh, friend of ours, Scott Savitt, was running this uh, <laughs> illegal newspaper, uh, Beijing Scene, and he offered me a job as an editor. And I just got the bug of doing entrepreneurial media things in China because it was a time when anything seemed possible. You could just do illegal things and nobody kind of well, knew what well, happened to Scott Savitt. Well, <laughs> just a call out to Scott Savitt who's probably listening to this. It might be. But it was a very exciting time because you, uh, although you know, there were lots of rules, nobody was really enforcing them. So, um, and there was such enthusiasm for foreign ideas in the, in the, in the mid to late 90s in China. You know, it was before China got the Olympics. Um, and it was still a time when you could get a, a meeting with a... Vi- you know, you, I mean, for example, the guy that eventually got murdered by Gu Kailai, uh, Neil Haywood, was someone that we had uh, several mutual friends. And you could just write a letter to Bo Xilai, the at the time the mayor and party secretary of Dalian, and you know, become a confidant. That was what the 90s were like. So it was a great time if you had sort of entrepreneurial blood in your veins because the possibilities seemed endless. Of course, um, uh, later one gets older and wiser and has a number of ventures shut down and you realize that that was never the case. But that was what sort of gave me Mm. the bug. Um, you just uh, saying Dalian and entrepreneurial reminded me of a story when I was report- I was a reporter for Asia Week, um, and in 1985 um, I was given the opportunity to go to Dalian to interview a very very prominent Guti Hu, an individual entrepreneur who had opened China's first. Um, Uh, process those machines that could process photos in an hour Mm -hmm. so he had bought one of those machines he'd imported it and I went with an entire pack of journalists Chinese I think I might have been the only foreign one but we all went up on the train in great excitement to interview this person in Dalian because he could process photos in an hour this is that was (laughs) 1985 that and also just to add a thing about what people were hungry for, um, literally hungry. Whenever I, I would go back and forth from Hong Kong between 1981 and five, when I moved there for Asia Week, but I was I was going back and forth all the time, maybe once a month, and I'd stay for a, you know I was spending about a third of my time in China, and so people would ask me for the following things: they would ask me for green vegetables, which I packed my suitcase with; they would ask me for shampoo and conditioner, and at that time I remember there were programs on TV with talking heads describing how you use conditioner, educational programs. Um, My artist friends, including uh, Ah Xian, who I knew from the early 80s, um, and others would ask me for books on, I remember tracking this one down, on German and Italian neo-expressionism. So these are among the things that people in Beijing wanted brought to them that they were hungry for, whether it was for... Oh, oh, and also, of course, Lionel Richie tapes, Madonna tapes, and Tina Turner. And remember later, it was Yang Lian, the famous poet's father, who wanted fishnet stockings for his girlfriend. That's right. (laughs) When was that? When was that? that 1986. (laughs) 1986. When the old man was a visiting professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and I was working on Seeds of Fire, Mm -hmm. the book that John Minford and I 
I didn't. I was asked to take up some, among other items, <laughs> to, to Beijing. You could almost write a history of China and Beijing exactly. through scarcity. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Well, another thing is when you said Yang Lian is um, Yang Lian and I took a trip to a very ill-fated trip to Sichuan together in I think it was 1985, and. Um, we wanted to go to Jiu, uh, to um, uh, Jiu Dai Go with some friends of his. And as it turned out, we would never get permission because you had to get permission to go to various places in China at the time. You had to tell the police when you were leaving Beijing. I got to Chengdu with Yang Lian, but we never got out of Chengdu. He, I finally had to say to him and his friends, you guys go, I just can't get permission. But um, one of the funny things about that trip was before we went, we went with a bunch of friends, mixed foreign and Chinese, to a newly opened disco in, I think it was the Great Wall Hotel. And they, they had a Filipino cover band. And, um, funny, that. <laughs> and we were very excited because this was very new. There was a place to go dancing. And so we went off, and Yang Lian and the other Chinese friends weren't allowed to enter. So we didn't go in, obviously. We had a big, strenuous argument and didn't win it. Then Yang Lian and I go off to Chengdu, and his friends say, there's a place we like to go dancing. It's a hotel, da-da-da. And we go there, and we're, we're dancing away, and the, the uh, security people come and drag me off the dance floor because I'm not allowed to dance. <laughs> so this is, this is still the sort of yeah. exclusions. When it was still uh, apartheid, effective apartheid. Before yeah. money ruled. Yeah. <laughs> Can we go back a little bit? And Jeremy, I'd like to ask you to describe sort of a moment when in some ways you could say the 70s ended when, when uh, that uh, you've told me about before, when you heard that all the old dogma was going to be overturned and everything you'd been taught. Well, it was a slow process. I mean, first it began with the, the, the arrest of the, what would, would become known as the Gang of Four, which I heard about first from Australian radio. I was in a, in a, in a commune in Liaoning province, Jinxian County, Liaoning, Liaodong Peninsula, not far from Dalian, picking apples for export to the Soviet Union with my classmates. And <laughs> for hard currency for the nation. And um, for Suzhou, as it was always called, Soviet, the Soviet revisionists. And we heard from Radio Australia that these people had been arrested. We knew something was wrong because there were constant flights over the commune. It turned out that the Shenyang military region was sending planes to Beijing to try and carry out a coup against the leadership that had arrested the military coup that had got rid of the Gang of Four under Ye Jianying and Hua Guofeng. And... Um, but after that, we went back to school in Shenyang. In, this is in October, November 1976. Uh, and then all of our textbooks, each university and high school produced their own textbooks. There were no textbooks except those produced locally for their own universities. And we went back to political cl- politics class and Chinese class and gradually had to start going from early 77, had to, with our teachers, go through the textbooks. And at first... We had to cross out in black pen, not red pen, which was positive, black pen was negative, <laughs> cross out incorrect passages in our textbooks. And then a couple of months later, we had to start tearing pages of the textbooks out. And eventually, by June, July of 77, we had to hand in the textbooks for pulping. <laughs> so, and, that, and, and gradually, from 77 until 83, 81, 23, that many years... Everything we had learned, as I was a student who went to university as, uh, during Mao Zedong's life, when the Red Book, not the Red Book, it was already gone, but the Mao Zedong thought was the ruling guiding principle of politics. 
So I went from that, and everything we'd learned in the first three years gradually became either defunct or was overturned, bit by bit. Every film we'd watched was denounced, every book we'd read was attacked or pulped, and all the things that we'd heard that had been denounced previously was rehabilitated. So I lived through that period, five, six, seven-year period, at the same time as meeting our old friends, uh, Linda and my old friends, Yang Xianyi and Gladys Young. I met them in 1976. And they introduced me to all these people who were coming back from labor camps, prison camps, solitary confinement, or from just deracination. The hundreds and hundreds of writers and intellectuals, I met dozens of those people. So it was an extraordinary period that Linda described the, the 80s when there was this efflorescence among younger people. But there was also this revival because gradually the world that had existed for 10, 20, 30 years was falling to bits. Now we have seen that same world be reconditioned under the last 10 or 20 years, reinvented and selectively turned into the contemporary Chinese dogma. Is there a moment we could identify in the 80s that, I mean, would it be the obvious moment when the 80s ended? Uh, 89. It's the, the 80s obvious ended, moment. I think, June in 4. 89. But can I just go back to that, to Yang Sheni um, and Gladys's apartment? Um, Jeremy introduced me to them in, I think it was 1981. Mm. And... Um, and you would meet the most extraordinary people there, but thinking about the end of an era and the meeting of people who were coming out of the woodwork, in a sense, there was one day, and I don't remember whether you were there, Jeremy, but um, this couple came in, and they were very much unlike most of the people that you would meet at Young at the Young's apartment, who were intellectuals and writers and had a certain uh, panache or a certain kind of, uh, you know, flair. The, this couple came in, and they were very much sort of uh, hunched over, and they wore very faded blue workers' clothes. Um, they were very shy in the circumstances. They, they, they kind of shuffled in, and, it, and I didn't even realize at first that the man was not Chinese. He was so Chinese in his aspect, and he spoke Shandong Chinese, um, perfect fluent Shandong Chinese. So it took me a moment to kind of look at him and go, wait a minute, this guy isn't Chinese. It turns out he was a Korean War veteran who had been captured as a POW by the Chinese, had been so-called brainwashed, and had decided to live in China. He had been, since the Korean War, living in Shandong as a worker where he was introduced to a wife and they had a family and everything else. And this was his first trip to... Beijing, and I believe it was going to be his first trip after that home to the United States to actually see his family after all that time. Mm. So there was this whole sense of worlds changing, you know, world orders and many different types of world orders within China, a changing of a guard, you know, a changing over. I'd like to ask one more question and then open uh, to questions from the floor, uh, which is uh, we've talked now a little bit 70s, 80s, 90s. What about you know, the 21st century, the first 13 years or so of the 21st century. Um, Does China still hold the same fascination for you? Because it's a lot less foreign than it was Mm. in many, many ways. There's a Starbucks on every corner of Beijing just about. Well, I I run a research centre with all of our colleagues here in the audience that um, concentrates on what we call new sinology. And that is a sinology, an, an engagement with the study of China that tries to appreciate the very particular place China still is, particularly in a very different way in some senses, but also very particular. In in particular, particular, um, especially because of since the rise, I could say this a few years ago, but now with the rise of 
chairman of everything, Xi Jinping, um, we have an extraordinary situation in which elements of the Maoist, Marxist-Leninist tradition are more alive today, whether real or not, it's another matter, alive today than they've been for 30 years, where there's a reconciliation between the first 30 and the latter 30 years of the People's Republic of China, and where there's elements of Qing history, the reconciliation with Ming thought, with Republican-era Chinese ideas, that has not been possible under any other in any other era of the, of the People's Republic of China. So in a way, all the things that I've studied in terms of traditional China, Republican China, Maoist China, the experiences I've had, the people I've met, the ideas I've been interested in, are now more alive and more accessible, more complex and now informing a new world power in a way that wasn't possible. It was presumed in the 70s when China thought itself a world power and the center of world revolution. But now it's actually becoming something that it's always pretended to be. So in some ways it's more fascinating now than it's ever I'm been. I'm afraid it is, yes. And for me, I think um, the culture that so interested me, that so captivated me in the cultural renaissance and the curiosity and the, the, the vitality that so interested me in the 80s, um, when you look back at it, on the whole, it, didn't pro- it, it was amazing, but it didn't produce such great art. <laughs> Let's be you know, quite frank about that. Um, it, there were some great movies and there, were some, there was some great art, but really what's happened is because of the, the time that has passed and the connections between China and the outside world and the, and the various sorts of social freedoms and the, the things that, that, that Chinese society has gone through itself, um, I think on a cultural level, it is so much more mature. The problem is that the commercialization of everything in China, I mean, really, people's material aspirations, I'm, not, I'm just not that interested in, you know, renovations. LV handbags. Yeah, and, and right. Gucci handbags and all yeah. that. But where, where it has enabled incredibly interesting cultural experimentation... Um, I think it's, it continues to fascinate me. I'm very what interested about in my culture. How about you? Um, you know, as somebody who's actually been living there for <laughs> nearly 20 years continuously, I'm, I'm a little wary of, of uh, some of the in-your-face aspects of, of contemporary China, I have to say. But as a subject of study, I, I would have to agree with you. It's, in some ways, it's more interesting than it's ever been, and a lot of that is because, because of the mix. And, uh, you know, it, in some ways, it also it reminds me of um, something one of your great teachers uh, wrote, uh, Simon Lace, about... Um, when the fish learn to talk, you know, ichthyology will become a whole new, new, new sphere. And I feel that China is, is really talking for itself now, and you don't need foreigners to interpret it necessarily, yeah. or, 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 and sometimes they're not welcome. And, um, but this is making, for a, in some ways, a much more interesting place culturally. Oh, absolutely. Um, more vibrant, more open. Yeah, and I also like the fact that you, you, the, the, the apartheid that used to exist even in the oh. 90s is, is pretty much gone, that you, know, you can go in most, you know, unless it's a sensitive area, but you can go anywhere you want in the countryside, you can drive, you know, Chinese people are held out of hotels and yes. that kind of thing. On that note, let us turn over to the floor and see if we can get some interesting questions. Olivia has a mic, um, which we would like to use just for the purposes of trying to ensure an even sound quality. For sharing some fascinating insights. And I'm going to ask the question I hate that everybody else asks of these sorts of things, which is predictions for the future. It's, there's nothing inexorable about China, particularly in our lifetime. There's been these choppings and changings. What do you think is you know, the great opportunities, great risks? What's likely to happen? 
I am lost in a mood, given the day that is approaching tomorrow, of reverie and nostalgia, and I will continue to think about the past 40 years rather than speculating on the future. In particular, also people always say China is one of those countries where um, the future is predictable because it's moving towards communism. It's the past that constantly changes. And I will just say that anybody who tells you they have a crystal ball is a gypsy. Um, oh, no, I shouldn't say that. That's terribly politically incorrect, isn't it? It's a, Roma. It's a, anybody, can I just change that? Anybody, anybody who tells you that they have a crystal ball um, belongs in a carnival sideshow, and I don't do predictions. <laughs> well, I mean, they could be. Anyway. Next. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't think I can match those two answers. <laughs> I mean, no respect, no disrespect towards Roma people. We might have to edit that out. You know, Jeremy you Paxman is uh, yes. about to be fired from the BBC for <laughs> remarks. There are all kinds of things going on in America about recordings of people Fortune. saying inappropriate yes. things. We don't own a. <laughs> A basketball club, thank God. <laughs> Our audience is shy, so I will take a little venture at answering that question. I mean, I'm a stumble-along stumble theorist about China. Mm. I, I, I don't believe China is going to be number one in, in... It may be the biggest economy in the world, but I don't think it's going to be able to dominate. Um, and I don't think it's going to fall apart. Um, whether it's going to be a nicer place for its own people to live is the question that I, I, uh, I'm unable to answer. And at the moment, I tend to think no. Uh, which is rather pessimistic. Well, I just thought I'd ask a question about food and how that's changed in terms of things that might have been available back in the 70s oh, and 80s. And I mean, everybody's in China now, you can get absolutely everything you want, and it's beautiful food. But what was it like in those early years for you? In the 70s, well, I left China first, my main departure was in 78, and I was um, suffering from serious anemia because of, um, even though we were given special rations and provisions, I still <laughs> managed to become anemic because of lack of iron. I do remember that the most we had, as a political class, I mentioned the, the learning how to kill a chicken using chamomile thought, but I remember that on that day that we'd had that, had that, that discussion, we went back to the university's long three-hour trip or whatever it was back from the abattoir, and our political teachers and others who represent a whole range of noxious possibilities of Maoist propaganda. So we were run by a Maoist propaganda team and had our political teachers and so on and so forth. They were all pretty foul, except for the Chinese literature people. The one thing that excited them, the one moment that we, I saw, and the 10 months I studied in Shanghai before moving to Xinjiang, an animation was then, they, suddenly the conversation turned to food. And they spent three hours talking about the meals they'd had in the 60s and what they'd eaten, and the smells, and the flavours, and how you did this, and how you cut those shallots, and how you dealt with this, and that, and the other, and the oil, that you could get oil back then, and blah, blah, blah. They revealed a world that we couldn't experience there, because it was a... Well, if you watch Antonioni's Zhongguo, you can see there's a Shanghai tea, tea house scene, and you see these people, the skin pellucid, thin, they look very beautiful, but this is the beauty of poverty and complete starvation, and everyone had these saggy clothes because everyone was so thin. I, if you look at the, the pictures, we'll show, I was very thin as well, and it was this, the memory of the past, and then gradually oil, and then the, gradually the rediscovery of food occurred. Uh, um, I'll just tell a few, I've got a few telling anecdotes. One is in 1980 
or 81, um, I took a, 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 a young guy who was the son of a professor I had met um, in my work in the press, and um, well, I took him to the Beijing Hotel for lunch. And at that time, the Beijing Hotel served food in tiny little dishes. Um, that was the Beijing style, like little teeny dishes. We're talking very small. Um, now, peanuts would come in that sort of size. <laughs> and I ordered a number of dishes, and he kept saying, don't order too much, you know, the usual polite thing. Um, it wasn't a huge banquet. And we had, I remember we had some pork, and we had some beef, and we had some different other kinds of food, um, mostly vegetable. And afterwards... Uh, he became over. He was overcome by this incredibly painful set of stomach cramps that were due to the extraordinary amount of protein that he had ingested in one meal. Um, it was so so hard. Um, it was extraordinary. Later, when I was living there, friends would always ask me to take them or to buy for them um, uh, cooking oil at the. Um, friendship store because um, they had to get they had to buy it with coupons I remember when the very first uh, independent um, independently run restaurant opened in Beijing and before then if you went to a restaurant they were just they would they needed rou piao and liang piao they needed the ration coupons for everything and the the tables were disgusting um, the the floors were covered with spit and fish bones and chicken bones and it was just it was not pleasant you did not go out for fun and then finally this this um, place these people opened up a, a an individual restaurant and we went in I remember going in maybe it was with you that's it and we looked at the menu and they had all these different and things food. we're so excited <laughs> and they had dofu which was actually very rare at the time it was not easy to get so we were like oh we'll have the uh, mapo dofu mayo <laughs> we'll have the um We'll have this, mayo. We'll have that, mayo. And the only things they had were things that were made with uh, pork, cabbage, and carrots. Is that correct? Yeah. All very nourishing. The food in but Nanking, good. The food in, will in Nanking then, as now, was no good. <laughs> <laughs> By the time I arrived, this had already been solved, and the uh, only thing that was difficult to get was exotic cheese and, and, and good coffee. Oh, tisk tisk. Oh, 1999, the first Starbucks in China. Organic in China bagels. World. Actually, can I just insert one little <laughs> other quick anecdote here, because it's a good one. Wang Shuo, the author, um, had just put in, I'm trying to remember what year it was, but I was already living in Canberra, and he had put in, so it was after 86, he had put in a new kitchen, and it had Western That's as right. well as uh, Chinese um, kind of ovens and things like that. So he wanted me to make a, a, a Western meal. I had to come from, I had to fly from Canberra with a suitcase full of uh, <laughs> cheese, Italian sausage, olive oil, Italian bread, all this stuff, and I went and I made this entire meal for them, for a whole bunch of friends, at Wang Shuo's place, and everybody was very interested, and then we were, they were critiquing it, and one person said, completely innocently, of any cliches that go around in the West, said, so that's Western food, it's kind of good, but I think you get hungry like half an hour later. <laughs> <laughs> A question for all three of you. Um, is there one thing from all your involvement with China um, that you've learnt um, that would 
not be shared with people who have given their lives to France or India or somewhere else? What is the thing that China has given to you? Communism? <laughs> <laughs> it did teach me how to deal with the university bureaucracy and the government to help create the centre in which we now sit. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Let's <laughs> go. The living essence of Mao thought. I, I think there was this. I think it gave me an ability to perceive how different layers of reality uh, work um, simultaneously. So you've got the ideological, the China reconstructs reality, and you've got the reality on the street, and you've got the reality that's whispered to you or that you occasionally get a glimpse of. That was in the 80s, um, and the fact that every so often, whenever there was this great resurgence of interesting stuff, they'd clamp down, campaign against spiritual pollution, campaign against bourgeois liberalism, uh, etc. And so there was this this sense of how many different how many different realities coexist and a way of coping with that that I don't think every society gives you. That makes sense to me. I mean, I, I felt, unlike Jeremy um, and Linda, I arrived in China not speaking Chinese. And the first year I was there, I felt like a baby because I didn't know how to use chopsticks. I couldn't eat. I couldn't read. I couldn't talk. Um, and it was a sort of profoundly uh, affecting experience. Um, and I think really what it's taught me is that there's nothing strange in human experience. I don't think I, I would find any way of human behavior shocking or strange anymore. <laughs> Actually, that's the thing about China. People say, what, what draws you to China? And I always say, it's everything. It's the best and it's the worst. It has every extreme and it all coexists. It's all existing there at the same time, in the same place, sometimes in the same people. Yeah, I just got a question. It's to do with the 80s, but a lot to do with now. I mean, it just seems like a, a lot of the works of the, the 80s, the, the real kind of free liberal thinking, that that environment was just was so, was so kind of exciting and energetic, that there was so much that wanted to be said that were said but then weren't allowed to be said. Whereas in the past 10 years with the internet and everything, it's almost everyone can say anything they want. It's just, will anyone hear it? And will there be any money invested to, to, make, it, uh, to make it heard? I mean, do you think it's almost as, as there's a medium for, for discussion to be actually heard that it's kind of getting swept away by this commercialism that I remember so well giving a, a talk in 1986 at this um, international conference of Chinese literature at Jinshan, organized by the then Minister of Culture, Wang Meng. Um, and I gave a talk on Chinese prose writing, but I started it with a quote from Milan Kundera, in which he spoke about graphomania. We've entered an age where everybody, prostitutes, taxi drivers, garbage collectors, night watchmen, everyone wants to write, 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 self-express. Talk, 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 talk. We've entered an age of universal writing, a fear that if we don't write and speak now, we'll disappear into the voidness of nothing. And yet we've entered an age of universal deafness. So rather than commercialization, have we, are we generally, is it the shared fate? After all, we're talking about creating a new yearbook for our center called Shared Fate. Is it the shared fate of humanity to enter a new age of universal deaf deafness? 
Um, on the subject of self-expression and commercialization, I have an anecdote about Jeremy. Um, <laughs> we were at a censored. <laughs> we were once at a um, some kind of party. There were all sorts of um, young writers and uh, artists and um, and others. And at that time, the word underground was constantly used in Chinese and English to describe the people who. Uh, in, in, with some legitimacy, the people who could not get a, an official showing of their work or, or whatever. And I remember this um, fellow came up to Jeremy. At that time, all artists would, if they, if they were coming to a party with foreigners, they'd bring their entire collection of slides so that you know, they would show it to you. And poets would bring photostated um, copies of their poetry and give it to you. So it was quite a kind of an entrepreneurial um, atmosphere even before commercialization. But this guy came up to Jeremy. Yes, I was going to <laughs> I was going to say this fellow called Tom Pingong came up to Jeremy and said, I this is my novel, wasn't it? This is a novel I've written and it's underground. And it hasn't. I'm an underground writer. This is my novel, and it hasn't been published. And Jeremy said, "Let me know when it's published." Nineteen eighty-six, a period of openness, and there was. This was the age of Guha, famous writer at the time, asked me to write a denunciation of him in Chinese in the Hong Kong papers that I wrote for, so that his novel could become more famous. That was a very particular age, eighty-six, eighty-seven. Uh, I was just wondering, you were talking about changes in China over the years you've been living and working there. What sort of changes have you noticed when you've been out of China in terms of the kind of questions people ask you and people's expectations and understanding about China? I recently had a conversation with a very senior person in our government, an advisor-type character, and they offered the opinion that, oh, China, this is a person with a certain background in European history. Oh, China, well, you know, it's repressed and it's censored and there's no freedom of expression or freedom of thought at all. That's a question you'd get in the 70s and you still get now from some people. And as I said to him, where do I begin? You're not even wrong. One of the questions you got then you get now is, what's China like? (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. But one of the very interesting things that happened years ago, Jeremy and I had a meeting with Dame Leonie Kramer and some other people. Um, Who else were we meeting with? Um, But I remember her in particular because they were asking us where we thought China was going at the time. I thought maybe I did have a little crystal ball. And I predicted, (laughs) and this was in 1986, seven or eight Mm, or something, Um, I predicted that China was headed towards an environmental catastrophe and that it was going to possibly impact, um, have an impact on the entire world. Um, And Dame Leonie Kramer Kramer actually hissed Mm. and uh, she was completely (laughs) disgusted with me. Professor Um, of English then at uh, Sydney University. Very eminent, uh, Yeah. yeah, academic. And I was led to understand that there are things that people don't want to hear. And sometimes I do think, like, for example, when I saw this weekend in the Sydney Mo- in the Good Weekend magazine, there was a thing on Beijing Air, and this is in the, the popular press in, in Australia, um, a big thing on Beijing Air and 
you know, face masks and all the rest. And I sometimes think, I wonder if she's reading that and thinking of that conversation. <laughs> I, I would say, I, I think there's, a, a, there's still a lot of ignorance about China. You get the same dumb questions that you... I get the same dumb questions that I did, you know, with, uh, when I was... The first few years I was there. Uh, but there are also a lot more well-informed people. Absolutely. Um, mm. uh, one thing particularly that's changed in responses I get was... I used to get, uh, you know, when people heard I was living in China, this kind of confused look like, why? You know, why? Uh, whereas now that's more often replaced by, oh, you must be making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> One more? Very quickly, uh, what did you most get wrong? <laughs> Lots. <laughs> Just trying to think what I particularly I got lots wrong. Example? In my own case, I thought I could run a media business there legally. <laughs> <laughs> but for many years, I laboured under this strange misapprehension. <laughs> I think what I got wrong was I got swept up in the enthusiasm in the 80s uh, for the various artists and uh, writers and so on, which was kind of politically guided. So I really appreciated anybody who was uh, like Wang Keping making these sculptures that um, were statements on, um, on on Maoist control and all this sort of thing. And I think that although I had come to China with a really strong interest in Western art and in art in general, I got a little bit sidetracked in my what I found. Wonderful, you know, and I look back at some of these things and I think it wasn't great art. I should have appreciated it for its historical importance, but I think I, I was a little bit over enthusiastic. For me, one of the things that um, has always surprised, well, surprised me the last four or five years now that I run a, a research center on China is that I thought that my vagabond spirit and my um, incredulity about most things to do with the world would uh, keep me in good stead as an alternative type writer and academic on China. And here I am, running an, an establishment uh, figure. Uh, uh, <laughs> except not. Except one has to then try to convert everything and convert the world. Aha, uh-huh. so it's, it's, it's an ongoing revolution. On that note, I think we should stop. Thank you very, very much for coming to this live special edition of the Seneca Podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you.